morning. Sorry, we a little bit, had a little bit of a slide problem there, but uh, that's okay. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Hopefully, we will have it on the screen uh, here shortly, but uh, in the meantime, you can follow along in your Bible or device or whatever that uh, might be. So, as you turn there, I want to ask a question. Who here has ever been to Rome? All right, who here has ever been to the Sistine Chapel? All right, so I want to tell you a story about the Sistine Chapel. By the way, it's not the 16th Chapel, because if there were 15 before it, uh, something like that, it's called the Sistine Chapel. It originally wasn't called the, uh, the Sistine Chapel. Uh, it was originally called the Great Chapel, but it's now called the Sistine, S-I-S-T-I-N-E, because it was uh, originally commissioned by a pope whose name was Sixtus. Sixtus the fourth, so uh, that's kind of confusing. But uh, anyway, he built it, and uh, so it was uh, renamed from the Great Chapel to the Sistine after Sixtus the fourth. It was built in the 15th century. You've probably heard of the Sistine Chapel before, even if you've never been there. It's, uh, it's famous for a couple of reasons. First, because it is the, uh, the site of the, the papal enclave which is the process whereby a new pope is, uh, is chosen. So all of the Catholic cardinals who are in on that process, they meet together in the Sistine Chapel and they elect Peter's successor. They elect the new pope. So that's the first reason that it's well known. But it's even more well known for what reason? Paintings, right? The, the, the artwork. And that artwork is done by someone very famous. Who's that? Yeah, Michelangelo, right? Not Michelangelo, the Ninja Turtle, but uh, Michelangelo, the Renaissance uh, painter. And uh, so you've probably seen pictures of the ceiling. We have a picture if the slides are working. Yes, that's it, all right? So that's a famous picture from the, uh, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. What you may not know is that the ceiling wasn't the only part of the chapel that Michelangelo actually painted. So some 30 years after he had been in the Vatican uh, to paint the ceiling, uh, Michelangelo comes back, he comes back to the, to the Vatican, and he actually paints the wall over the altar in the chapel. So here's a picture of, uh, of that. All right, so that's the, the painting that he paints over the, uh, the altar on that wall. That was painted in the 1530s, so about 30 years or so after painting the ceiling, 1530s. Now, what's happening in the 1530s? Well, it's a little thing called the Protestant Reformation, all right? And uh, so things were kind of tense at the Vatican, all right, because uh, there's all of a sudden this group that is rebelling against Catholic uh, authority. And so uh, the Reformation is in swing, things at the Vatican are kind of tense, and when things are tense, people tend to get a little bit uh, testy. In particular, there's a papal official named Biagio de Cesena, Biagio de Cesena, and he started complaining He didn't like Michelangelo's work. He thought that the picture that you see up there was offensive. He thought it was pornographic because it depicts uh, nude figures. And besides that, he was really angry because it was taking far too long and he thought Michelangelo was kind of milking it for more money uh, because it took something like six years for him to, uh, to paint uh, that particular wall. Now, if Biagio de Cesena had, have just, uh, had simply have complained after the fact, after Michelangelo was done, I wouldn't be telling the story. But instead... He began to criticize, he began to grumble, he began to gossip and slander Michelangelo or Michelangelo while he was still working on it. And that's a problem, all right? It's kind of like heckling a comedian during a show. What tends to happen when you do that? 
Well, one of you has a mic and the other one doesn't, all right? So the comedian tends to win that, uh, that battle, and that's what happens with Michelangelo. Michelangelo gets mad that Biagio is, uh, is complaining, and so what does Michelangelo do? He paints Biagio's portrait into the scene, and not just any scene. The painting is called The Last Judgment, and he paints Biagio among the damned in hell, all right? So you can see in the uh, bottom right-hand corner, and then you, if you want to focus in on that, zoom in on that, that's Biagio, all right? I don't think his ears were actually like that. Uh, that was something that, uh, that he gets at. So, uh, so Biagio then gets mad, all right, because he notices, hey, that's me, all right, uh, and, uh, and I'm in hell. And so he complains to the Pope, and the Pope responds, sorry, my jurisdiction doesn't extend to hell, all right? You know, even the Pope can only do so much, right? Uh, you know, he's got the keys to heaven, he's got the keys to purgatory, but, but hell is beyond his dominion. So to this day, you can go to the Sistine Chapel, you can go and you can look at that wall and you can see this guy, Biagio de Cessna, in hell if you, uh, if you visit the, the Sistine Chapel, which brings me to my point, which is that you should never offend artists or Italians, all right? And uh, what does that have to do with my text? Very little, all right? I'm just gonna be honest with you. I've been here five years, I'm running out of stories. But it's funny, uh, uh, there's a little bit of a, a, of a kind of a segue, I guess. Like the story of the Sistine Chapel and, uh, uh, and Biagio and, and Michelangelo, our text today is about offense. It's about being offended, it's about giving offense, uh, in, partic- in particular about offending others and ultimately about f- offending God. So let's pray. And then we'll dive in uh, together. First, pray for yourself, just uh, that the Lord would give you um, a heart and a mind that would uh, seek to understand and, uh, and love and treasure and obey his word this morning. And then pray a similar prayer for those around you us corporately to be able to hear and to, uh, to heed his word. And then would you pray for me, for faithfulness? So Father, we're grateful that you're a good God who gives good gifts, and uh, we're grateful for the gift of, uh, of your son, uh, first and foremost, and then we're grateful for the gift of your spirit who enlightens us, the gift of uh, the scripture which was uh, inspired by your spirit, and the gift of the church, an opportunity this morning to, uh, to be encouraged and edified and convicted and challenged and all those things by your word. Pray that your spirit would apply them to our hearts. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Which says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How many of you have heard that verse before? Right? How many of you have actually like memorized that verse uh, at some point? Right? How many of you own something with that passage written on it? Right? So maybe it's a pillow or a framed picture or a mug or a plate, right? Eat or drink, whatever you do. Uh, and uh, so all of us, in a sense, own something, right? Because if, if you own a Bible, you own something with that printed on it. Uh, but for years, this has been one of my favorite verses of Scripture. It's kind of a life verse, uh, if you uh, will. And here's, 
Here's what I have kind of historically thought that the passage meant. I, I thought that Paul, what he's doing here is he mentions eating and drinking just because those happen to be these, these relatively mundane, everyday activities. And so I thought Paul's point is that even in the small stuff, we should glorify God. So when you have a delicious glass of OJ, uh, the drink, not the, the guy who maybe killed somebody, but anyway, when you have a, I should, shouldn't have said that, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> Forgive me, sorry. When you have a de- de- delicious glass of OJ or milk or whatever that you should taste and see that the Lord is good. When you, uh, when you eat a nice steak, that you should, uh, you should enjoy it to the glory of God. So uh, I kind of thought, how, how is it that we glorify God in eating and drinking? Well, you pray before meals, you cultivate gratitude for the gift of food, you slow down and you enjoy it rather than just kind of scarfing it down. You turn off the TV and talk to your spouse and your kids during family dinners. You invite others over to eat with you and to fellowship that you don't engage in gluttony and on and on you could go. And all of that stuff is good. Each of those are ways that you glorify God in your eating and drinking, and it's absolutely true that you should glorify God in everything, even the small stuff, even the routine, the mundane, but that really isn't the the reason that Paul mentions eating and drinking. The reason that he mentions eating and drinking isn't because these are these routine, mundane sort of tasks. The reason that he mentions these particular activities is because... Uh, not because they're just simple routine tasks, but rather because of the context. The reason he mentions them is because he's been talking for the past few chapters about eating and drinking. In particular, he's been talking about food sacrificed to idols. For the past three chapters, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10, all of those are about eating and drinking. In particular, the topic of food sacrificed to idols. So to kind of recap what we talked about for the last few months, this will kind of be the last sermon that's on this topic of food sacrificed to idols. But Corinth was a hotbed of pagan worship. I don't even know what a hotbed is. But Corinth is a hotbed of, uh, of pagan worship. And part of that pagan worship, it was so uh, interwoven within their culture, part of that pagan worship involved offering sacrifices to idols. That was a huge part of their culture. Right, they offered sacrifices for everything, for rain, for sickness, for battles, for harvest, whatever it might be. There was a God that they wanted to worship and so there were sacrifices that they would offer to honor that God. And so some of that meat that was sacrificed in the temples would have been consumed there in the temple. Some of it would have been consumed by the priest. Some of it would have been consumed by the person who offers the sacrifices. But you can't, as, uh, as Zach helpfully said last week, you can't eat an entire cow by yourself. And so not only would that have been eaten within the process of worship, some would have also been eaten at a subsequent feast And those feasts would have been in honor of the gods. So they would have these love feasts. They would have these uh, uh, kind of orgies sort of things where there is sexual uh, immorality and also idolatry going on. Uh, So they have some of these feasts. And then some of the leftovers would also have been sold in the meat market, kind of the the ancient Hutchins barbecue or something like that. So So being a Corinthian in a lot of ways, culturally, socially meant offering sacrifices. It was this part and parcel of their culture and society. But then if you're converted, you become a Christian, you're regenerated, you believe the gospel, you trust Jesus Christ, so what is it that you do then? 
Well, some Christians, some Corinthian Christians said, you can't eat that meat. That meat has been sacrificed to idols. It's demon meat. It's defiled. It's polluted. It's tainted. Others said, no, you absolutely can't eat it because those idols are nothing. Those gods that are worshiped are nothing. There's only one God. And Paul's gonna come in, he's gonna actually offer a nuanced view. He's gonna actually agree with those who say that meat isn't inherently defiled. We saw this last week, right? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All food, in other words, belongs to God. Even if that meat has been offered to Zeus, it doesn't belong to Zeus, it belongs to God, all right? Because everything belongs to God. So that meat isn't actually defiled. It isn't actually polluted. In that sense, Paul says you can eat it. But then he's gonna give a bit more nuance. In particular, he gives two qualifications to that freedom. He says you can eat that meat, but he gives two qualifications to that freedom. He says, number one, Christians can't offer sacrifices themselves. They can't participate in this pagan worship, so they can't actually engage in idolatry. And then number two, Christians can't eat meat when doing so might lead others to think that they're doing so as an act of pagan worship. So you can't go to the temple and offer a sacrifice to Artemis or Zeus or something like that, but you can buy meat from the meat market or you can go to your neighbor's house and eat whatever is set before you, even if that meat was originally dedicated to an idol. However, if your neighbor says, hey, by the way, this meat, let's eat it in honor of Artemis or let's eat it in honor of Poseidon, then you can't do that. So that's the nuance that he gives. Right? There are times when you can eat it, there are times when you can't eat it or you shouldn't eat it. And today's passage is kind of the apex. It's the crescendo of the argument he's been making over the past few uh, 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 chapters because he's going to simplify things a bit by giving us this standard for assessing whether or not to eat or drink. And that standard, that litmus test is the glory of God. Now, when I say glory of God, that's one of those terms that you hear all the time and yet defining it might be somewhat difficult. So what is the glory of God? That's a really big question. After all, the Bible is consistently going to say over and over, it's going to say that we are to glorify God uh, and historic confessions like the Westminster Confession of Faith, a a great uh, confession. is going to say things like man's chief end is to what? Anybody know? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this is a big deal that we know what the glory of God is. So what is the glory of God? Well, you might think of the glory of God as, uh, as the reflection of God's magnificence, of his grandeur, of his beauty. It's the manifestation of God's splendor. It's the refraction of his divine attributes. And that's not only the standard for eating and drinking, but notice he says, or whatever you do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's where you get the sense of glorifying God even in the mundane details of life. Not from the eating and drinking, but rather from that phrase, whatever you do. You should work to the glory of God. You should talk to others, uh, others to the glory of God. You should rest to the glory of God. You should consider your, your hobbies in light of the glory of God. You should do absolutely everything to the glory of God. Now how so? This is where the context is so crucial. Because right, I don't think that Paul's point here is that we eat to the glory of God by consciously thinking about the attributes of God as we chew our burgers, right? Every bite that you close your eyes, you make these weird sounds as you, you know, feast on God's aseity and his uh, omniscience or something like that. You ponder his power and perfection. So what is it that is his actual point here? Well, according to the context, the way that we eat 
or drink to the glory of God or do anything is by sacrificial love. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Don't use your freedom to pursue your own pleasure, but rather be willing to lay down your rights and your privileges for others. That's Paul's point. So let's talk about applying this passage for a second. What does this passage mean when it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God? I wanna suggest three areas of application in which we glorify God. The first area in which we glorify God is by doing what he has prescribed. There are a number of things in scripture that God actually commands, that he actually mandates for us. For instance, scripture tells us not to forsake the gathering of the church. So you can't choose to regularly forsake corporate worship to the glory of God. Or scripture tells us to not have adultery. You can't have an affair to the glory of God, all right? Uh, you, You can't look at pornography to the glory of God. You can't murder or gossip to the glory of God. So that's the first realm. All right, uh, as, my, uh, as my children are learning uh, a catechism, uh, the, the question is how do you glorify God? And the answer is you glorify God by loving him and obeying what he commands. All right, so that's the first reason, by doing what he prescribes. Second, we glorify him by, uh, uh, by avoiding what he prohibits. Some of the examples that I just used, you can't uh, uh, have an affair to the glory of God. You can't look at pornography or something like that to the glory of God. You can't murder to the glory of God. So the first way you glorify God is by doing what he prescribes. The second way is by uh, avoiding what he prohibits. But the third realm is actually more in line with the context and Paul's overall argument here. Because we've seen in chapters eight through 10, we're dealing with what's called adiaphora. Adiaphora, that's a word you may not be familiar with if you haven't come here uh, um, uh, much over the past few months. But adiaphora refers to things which are neither commanded nor condemned. Like food sacrificed to idols. Paul doesn't say you have to eat it, but he says you can eat it, all right? You can eat it, you don't have to. Or drinking a glass of wine with dinner or whether you own a TV or watch movies or have an occasional cigar or whatever it might be. Paul's point is that even though there is no universal rule as it applies to these adiaphora concepts, your freedom in those areas should always be tethered to the principle of glorifying God. And the way that you glorify God is by loving God and by loving others, right? Remember the greatest commandment. When someone asks, what's the greatest commandment? What's the response? What's Jesus' response? He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, mind and strength. And he says, and the second is what? To love others like yourself. You love your neighbor like yourself. And that love for your neighbor should therefore bleed over and affect the way that you think about your freedom, the way that you think about your conscience, the way that you think about these adiaphora, morally neutral sort of issues. So what's that mean? Let's look at verse 32. He says, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God. So how is it that we glorify God in these issues of adiaphora? How do we love God? How do we love others, even in those inherently morally neutral areas? And the answer is by giving no offense. Now instantly, when we read this, we have a problem from our perspective. We have an opportunity for misunderstanding what he's actually saying because our culture has so psychologized the idea of offense, 
All right, we've misunderstood, we've redefined the idea of uh, offense. It's why we have safe spaces on college campuses, why historic positions on sexuality or gender are considered hate speech and so forth. We have this ethic today in our culture that says, if you offend me, it's because you're the problem, right? Biblically, that's not necessarily uh, the case, though. And, uh, and it seems like, though, if we're reading this through our postmodern 21st century uh, American lenses, that's what it seems like Paul is saying. It seems like Paul is saying, don't ever offend anyone. That's not what Paul is saying, all right? That's a huge problem because we live in this time and place where just about anything can be considered offensive. For instance, the very first time I preached uh, after I was hired here at, uh, at Parkway, uh, after I preached... Um, the, uh, the elders asked various people, they asked for feedback and so forth, and there were two complaints that I got. The first one is, I didn't yell enough. This person said, you have to yell to be a good preacher. Uh, and uh, and the, the pastors came up to me afterwards and said, I want you to know that person's not a, a member, that person's a visitor, and that's not our theory that you have to yell or something like that. Uh, the second one, which I thought was hilarious, was uh, this critique that I took a water bottle on stage. <gasps> Oh my God, can you guys believe that, all right? As I've done every single Sunday since, all right? Why, in case I need to take a drink, right? I oftentimes don't, but better safe than sorry or something. At least that's what I thought. That is not what this person uh, in the congregation thought because someone complained that I'd brought a uh, water bottle on stage. That was offensive to them. To this day, I don't know why, right? Maybe they were expecting me to never thirst, right? That's a sign of weakness. Preachers shouldn't be weak. Maybe they were fine with me having water, they just didn't like the receptacle, right? They were like super green environmentalists and they're just offended by plastic bottles. Maybe it's the brand, I don't know, like I took maybe Aquafina and they're like a big fan of Sam's Choice or something. Maybe it's because it was just a plastic bottle, it isn't good enough for the glory of the pulpit, right? I should have been drinking out of a golden chalice or, I don't know, for whatever reason this person was offended. Now, the only way that I could have avoided offending this person is by not drinking water uh, from a plastic bottle. So is that what Paul is saying? That I should rethink all of my choices or something like that just because someone might be unnecessarily legalistically offended or something like that. That is not what Paul's saying. So what is he saying? Well, throughout chapters eight through 10, Paul has used the image of a stumbling block. We've seen that, uh, that language used a number of times. Something which adds an obstacle to the gospel. Not just something that makes someone mad, but something that adds an actual obstacle to the gospel. All right? And that's the idea of giving offense here in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 32. He's not saying don't do anything at all which will offend people. He's saying don't do anything which compromises the gospel. All right? Don't add some extra gospel some extra obstacle to the gospel, all right? We've seen in 1 Corinthians, the gospel itself is offensive. The gospel itself is a stumbling block. It doesn't need another stumbling block, all right? Paul's offensive. Jesus is super offensive if you actually read him, all right? The Bible is offensive. The problem isn't offending others. The problem is that when we present this unnecessary offense, when we use our preferences, when we use our privileges, when we use our desires and our rights in ways that make it more difficult for others to hear and to respond to the gospel. So for example, if, if you're just being a faithful Christian on the issue of sexuality, that's offensive in our culture today. 
right? For, for a Christian to say that homosexuality is sin, no matter what tone they use, no matter what nuance they use, anything else, that is inherently offensive in our culture today. Or for a church to say something like, we will have to say over the next couple of weeks, when talks about uh, headship within the, uh, the home and the church, for a wife to submit to her husband, that is seen as misogynistic and offensive in our culture. So there is already this, this baseline scriptural biblical offense that you can't avoid. For you to be faithful, you have to be offensive to some degree. But Paul says, don't add this extra offense this stumbling block, this obstacle beyond that which the gospel inherently entails. So don't read this passage where it says not to give an offense through these postmodern lenses when we've redefined the concept of offense. Again, the gospel is offensive. In fact, and I find this, this really ironic, by downplaying the, the offense, what some people tend to do, by trying to not be offensive, we actually ironically break this command. This biblical command, what do I mean by that? I think this is fascinating to think about, right? Let's imagine that someone uh, thinks, I know how I'll uh, I'll obey this verse. Uh, Paul here says not to be offensive, so I will never say anything offensive. I'll avoid talking about sin entirely. That's kind of like what uh, Joel Osteen says, right? I believe in sin, but I just wanna be positive. I'm gonna smile, I'm gonna blink all the time. Ironically, by trying to not be offensive, he's actually breaking the command. How so? Because the passage is saying, don't make it harder to believe and repent. But what's he doing? He's downplaying sin and therefore downplaying repentance. So in trying to accommodate the gospel, you actually obscure the gospel and make it harder to believe, harder to trust the actual gospel. Instead, what people are trusting in is some sort of caricature, the pseudo gospel. And the gospel is the point of verse 32. The gospel is the foremost manifestation of the glory of God. If you want to see the glory of God, there is no better way to see it than by looking at the gospel. So if you want to glorify God, you can't obscure the gospel. Let's go back to the Sistine Chapel for a second. Imagine that you're at, uh, there in the Vatican and you walk into that beautiful room and the moment you walk into the room, these two guards start arguing over cappuccino or pasta or whatever it is. And, uh, and so they start arguing and then all of a sudden a fist fight breaks out between these two guards. Well, what happens? No longer is anyone staring at the beauty above them. Rather, they're focused on the fight. And that's kind of what Paul says we do when we exercise our rights, our preferences, our privileges, our desires to the harm of others. We're distracting from the gospel. There's beauty above us, but no one's looking at that. Instead, they're looking at us. We're making it harder for people to see the glory of God. Now notice this final phrase here in this verse, right, where he says uh, to the, uh, the Greek and the Jew and the church of God, right, he's going to distinguish these three groups. He distinguishes between Jews and Greeks and the church of God. This is really interesting uh, in light of our contemporary culture where it's a cultural virtue or ethic for us to emphasize things like our race or ethnicity or whatever it might be, right? There is this, this cultural virtue there, whereas Paul's gonna do the exact opposite. Notice he mentions these two different ethnicities, Jew and Greek, Greek meaning uh, Gentile. For all of Jewish history, that was the way the world was divided. You have Jews and you have non-Jews, in other words, Gentiles. Every single human fits into one of those two classes, Jew or Gentile. 
And Paul mentions both of those groups. But notice what's significant is that he mentions a third group. He mentions a third classification. That is the church of God. Why is that significant? Well, because biblically, you can either find your identity in your ethnicity or you can find it in your election to faith. You can either find your identity, your worth, your value in your race or in your relation to Christ. You can't have both. We might divide the world as a culture. We might divide the world into categories like Jew and Gentile, but the church isn't divided in those categories. We might divide the world into black and white or American and non-American, but the church isn't divided in that way. The church is one. The church is not divided by its very nature. Paul makes that exceedingly clear elsewhere. Colossians 3.11. Notice this. Here there is not Greek and Jew. The very things that our culture wants to elevate. The Bible's downplays. There is not Greek and Jew. There is not circumcised and uncircumcised or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Or Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So in light of that, the world is no longer divided into Jew and Gentile, but rather believer and unbeliever. That's the crucial distinction according to a biblical worldview. All of anthropology, all of humanity fits into those two categories, believers and unbelievers. And Paul's point, though, is that depending on who you're around, they might be defended, uh, offended in various ways. What Jews find offensive is different from Gentiles often, right? Jews might be offended if you were to eat uh, a BLT in front of them, but ancient Gentiles wouldn't be offended by that. Or what, Jew, uh, what Gentiles are offended by is different from Jews, right? Corinthian Gentiles were offended, they're actually offended by monotheism, Jews aren't offended by monotheism. And then what believers are offended by is different from unbelievers. So here's what New Testament scholar David Garland says about this passage and why he mentions these three different groups. Being blameless, not giving offense to, being, being blameless with respect to, quote, the church of God, then means doing nothing that might cause Christians to founder in their faith by giving them license to revert to idolatrous practices. Being blameless with respect to Greeks, means doing nothing that might validate, validate the legitimacy of their resistance to God. Being blameless with respect to Jews means doing nothing that might give them the oppression that Christian teaching condoned idolatry and that becoming a Christian would entail abandoning the basic confession of one God. So Paul's point is that whether you're eating with an unbelieving Jew or an unbelieving Gentile or even with a brother or sister in Christ, the standard of your behavior should be the glory of God and that should be manifest in a willingness to lay down your own rights and preferences for the sake of others. And as an example of that, that's not just something that Paul tells us, he models it himself. Look at verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, as with the previous verse, this text is rife with misunderstanding because of the way that we think of a people pleaser today. All right, what's a people pleaser? Let's take a survey. When you hear the phrase, just random use of the phrase, people pleaser, raise your hand if you think that has a positive connotation most of the time. Raise your hand if you think it has a negative connotation. All right, all right, exactly. That's the way our culture tends to use this phrase. We tend to use it in a, in a negative sort of connotation. Someone who never says no. Someone who just wants others to be happy. 
someone who's willing to compromise on the truth in order to achieve the happiness or, or whatever of someone else. So parents who won't discipline their children or friends who won't tell you if you have spinach in your teeth or something like that, that's people pleasers, right? That's not what Paul means here. In fact, he's gonna explicitly condemn that type of people pleasing in passages like Galatians 1.10, where he says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ, all right? So he condemns that sort of, our image in our culture of people pleasers, Uh, and the word used pleased here, uh, the word please used here in verse 33, often has this connotation of win over. That's what Paul is after. He's not saying he does everything he possibly can so that others would like him. Or he does everything that he can so that others would be happy. Rather, he says he does what he does for the ultimate joy of others in the gospel, that he might win them over. Notice the final phrase there, that they may be saved. We've seen that over and over throughout this section of 1 Corinthians. Paul has a right to be married. But he lays down that right because he thinks he can more effectively discharge his calling as an apostle if he's single. So he lays down his right for the sake of mission. Or Paul has a right to be financially supported in the work of ministry. But at least when it comes to his relationship with the Corinthians, he lays down that right. He doesn't want to put a stumbling block uh, in the way because of some of the cultural assumptions of the Corinthians. He refuses support from that church for the sake of mission. Or as it relates to eating meat sacrificed to idols, in verse 18, uh, 13 of, uh, of chapter 8, he says this, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. He's being a bit hyperbolic there to make this point. And that point is that he has this willingness to lay down his rights. And that willingness, though, isn't just restricted to food and drink and marriage and money and those kind of categories. In chapter 9, We read this, verses 19 through 22. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak, I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You see the similar idea here at the end of chapter 10. Paul is willing to be this kind of cultural chameleon, not not out of some sort of insecure need for others to like him, but rather out of his passionate desire for people to behold Christ. That's the point. A people pleaser is oftentimes saying, look at me, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, look at Jesus. I don't want to put anything in your way that's going to obscure you from seeing him. So that's what drives him, his choice of vocation, his marital status, his cultural traditions that he follows, the foods he eats, the foods he avoids, uh, avoids whatever it might be. In all things, he seeks to be guided by the glory of God. That's the goal. But the means to that goal isn't just some individualistic private experience. That's not what he means by doing everything to the glory of God. Rather, the means to that end is the pursuit of the good of others, to seek their highest pleasure, their highest joy in the gospel. So that's Paul's mission. What about our mission? Chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, one of the things you need to to know about the Bible, when it comes to the Bible, you need to remember that God inspired the text He didn't uh, inspire the chapter or verse divisions, right? The Bible wasn't originally written in English. 
with footnotes and a concordance and things like maps in the back. In fact, uh, he didn't inspire chapters or verse divisions. In fact, modern chapter divisions didn't even exist until the 13th century. All right, so we don't have these sort of chapter divisions. Before then, there was no standardized system, so a, a professor at the University of Paris named Stephen Langton, he wanted to compel, uh, he wanted to unify all the various different options for the way that you divide the Bible for the sake of academic citation. Uh, and it wasn't for a few hundred years, uh, around, f- around 15 years after Biagio was painted in hell, around 1550 or so, that uh, you get the modern verse divisions. Why is that important? The reason that's important is because uh, chapter 11, verse 1, doesn't really belong with chapter 11. It actually belongs in terms of the thought with chapter 10, which is why we're preaching it today. In terms of the thought, it should actually be chapter 10, verse 34. It doesn't begin this new thought, rather it's the culmination, the completion of his previous thought and, uh, and the flow of, uh, of uh, chapters eight through 10. This is kind of the culmination, the consummation of this entire section. Next week, we'll transition into a new uh, train of thought. So in the previous verses, Paul has talked about how he's willing to lay down his preferences. He's willing to lay down his rights uh, for the sake of the glory of God. And by that, he means the sake of the gospel and the good of others. And he says, this isn't merely something that he does. Like it's just this, you know, he's an apostle He's a varsity Christian, but we don't have to do this. This is not just some sort of apostolic qualification. This is something that we should do. He says we should imitate him in glorifying God in everything we do, and by that he means laying down our rights and and preferences and so forth, all right? We should imitate him. Now, this isn't an exhaustive, uh, universal sort of command that we imitate Paul in absolutely everything. Obviously, Paul wasn't married He's not saying that that means that if you're single, you can't get married. Paul was a tent maker, so you need to learn how to make tents. Paul was a first century Jewish man. If you're a woman, you're just out of luck. If you don't have a beard, you need to grow a beard or whatever it might be. That's not his point. His point is the imitation is qualified. In particular, that we are to imitate him insofar as he imitates Christ. At the end of the day, the point of this passage isn't really imitate Paul. The point of this passage is imitate Christ. Paul's just using himself as an example of that principle because the Corinthians knew him, they knew his lifestyle, they knew his history, they knew his uh, ethic and so forth. But again, in what way are we to imitate Christ? All right, is Paul saying that we should imitate Christ by being born of a virgin, living a perfect life, dying for the sins of the world, those kinds of things? Or that we should imitate him by being the eternal son of God? Of course not. So in what way is he commanding us to imitate him? Well, again, in the context Christ's willingness to lay down his rights and preferences and privileges is what's at stake here, right? That's the point. As Christ is willing to love others by sacrificing himself, we should pursue that same goal. Ephesians 5 says it like this, verses one through two. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And notice this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The way that we imitate God is by loving others, and the way that we love others is by sacrificing ourselves. Or Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So what Paul is writing here uh, in this concluding passage of, uh, of chapters eight through 10 is that the way in which we glorify God in eating and drinking and everything else is by loving God and loving others. By loving God, we seek to mortify sin. We seek to actually put to death actual sin in our lives, right? To flee from immorality, which is uh, what chapter six says. To flee from idolatry, like chapter 10 says. We pursue the things that God has uh, commanded. We avoid the things that he condemns. That's in areas that are actual sin. And then in areas of neutrality, areas that are uh, adiaphora. We love God by loving our neighbors. Not in some fear of man's sense, which we obsessively care what others think about us, but rather by trying to not do that, which, uh, by trying to do that which is motivated by their greatest good, by not putting a stumbling block to the gospel in their way. So if we're going to try to avoid giving offense in this biblical sense, if we're gonna try to avoid putting stumbling blocks in the paths of others, if we're gonna try to avoid obscuring the glory of God, we need to think about how we might do that. I wanna suggest these three main ways. Those three ways are legalism, liberalism, and identity, all right? Legalism, liberalism, and identity. Let's start with legalism. Well, legalism is going to present this sort of stumbling block, this unnecessary offense. It's much more common among theologically conservative churches. What we tend to do, theologically conservative churches, we tend to add to God's commands. We tend to add to his rules. We subtly, sometimes unintentionally, suggest that God is against joy because we've created these extra biblical rules, these traditions of man. Don't, uh, don't see movies, don't drink alcohol, don't dance, don't laugh in church, don't drink you know, water bottles whenever you're, I don't know, drink a water bottle, don't drink water on stage or whatever it might be, all right? This is, that's one way we create this obstacle to the gospel. We obscure the grace of God, we obscure the glory of God because we kind of present this caricature of God when we add to his commands. So that's the first way that uh, we might disobey this command is by legalism. A second way it's kind of the opposite end of the, the, the spectrum, and that is liberalism. I don't mean political liberalism or something like that. I mean theological liberalism, in which we dilute, we downplay the truth. Right? We don't add to God's rules. Instead, we begin to dismiss some of them. We begin to dilute them. We begin to suggest that sexual sin isn't that bad, or maybe it isn't bad at all. We compromise on the biblical understanding of gender. We, we compromise on what the Bible says about divorce and remarriage or uh, the sufficiency, the authority of God's word. We, when we do that, we present this stumbling block, right? We make it harder for people to see the glory of God because we fundamentally reimagine what God is like and what he actually demands of his people. We make it harder to repent when we actually overlook what people are to repent from. We tell them, you don't need to repent of that thing that God says you need to repent of. So that's a second way that you can disobey this command by putting a stumbling block in someone's way is through liberalism. Lastly, another way is through our identity. We have a tendency, especially in our culture where, where there's a lot of identity politics and those kinds of things, we have a tendency to give unnecessary offense, to put a stumbling block in the way of others when we form our identity around something other than Christ. We've mentioned this a number of times in uh, chapters eight through 10, all right? Paul even mentions this here in this passage. When we exalt our ethnicity, that is Jew or Gentile, when we uh, uh, exalt our skin color 
or when the first thing someone knows about you is that you do CrossFit, or the first thing someone knows about you is that you're a vegetarian, or a little closer to home, what might hit some of us a little bit harder, when the first thing someone knows about you is who you voted for, that you're a Republican, or that you homeschool, or that you hate masks, or you hate vaccines, or that you hate those who hate masks, or you hate those who hate vaccines. We talked about this a lot in chapter 10 because this is a besetting problem for us. In our culture, there's a lot that is involved in our identity, all right? And, and one of the things we talked about in chapter 10 in particular is that the way we view our identity is oftentimes rooted in idolatry. So we gave a list of diagnostic questions. I would, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that to help you identify those things. What is it that you think about all the time, all right? What is it that you talk about all the time? When you're with your friends, when you're with family, when you're with strangers, what are the things that you think about? What are the things that you talk about? What is it that you worry about all the time? Oftentimes when you answer those questions, you actually begin to realize an aspect of your identity which is revealing a, a little area of idolatry for you, all right? Should you care about politics? Should you care about education? Should you care about COVID? Should you care about immigration and, uh, and foreign affairs like what's happening in Afghanistan? Of course you could. But should that be what you primarily inhale and primarily exhale? Of course not. That's not primary about you. Those things will all eventually go away. Your identity in Christ is the one thing about you that's actually eternal. So for every one glance, there was, a, there was a, a, a famous pastor named Robert Murray McShane, and he said, for every uh, you know, one glance at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And I think that's a good principle, that's a good practice. I would say the same thing. For every one glance at the news, you should take 10 glances at your Bible. News shouldn't be what predominantly uh, you are uh, inhaling, you're reading, you're intaking. For every one thought that you think about COVID, all right, you should have dozens of thoughts about Christ and his sovereignty and his power and his glory. For every one conversation that you have about politics, you should have handfuls of conversations about the glory of God, about his grace, about his mercy, about his love, about his sovereignty. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Love God, love your neighbor as Christ has demonstrated. And speaking of Christ's demonstration, we'll pray and then we'll turn our thoughts to communion. Let's pray. Father, I confess that this passage is, uh, is weighty. It's a, uh, a high standard for us. And yet I pray that you would empower us by your spirit to, uh, to seek to be obedient to this, that we might think about our lives, that we might think about our, uh, our rights, that we might think about our freedoms, that we might think about our desires, we might think about all those things, not just through the lens of what it is that we want, which anyone can do, but rather we might think about them through the lens of what is actually most loving and what most glorifies you that that might be our overriding concern, not that we would get what we want, but that others might see the glory and goodness of your son. So I pray that you'd help us. I could just confess there's nothing in us apart from your spirit that wants to be obedient. And yet if your spirit is in us, we can. And so I pray for your help. I ask these things because you're good and you do good. So pray it in Christ's name, amen.